Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On today's show, our guest is Kathleen Russell, Executive Director of the Center for Judicial Excellence, a nonprofit based out of California whose mission is to protect vulnerable children in the family court system and to strengthen the integrity of all courts by creating judicial accountability. The organization's strength is rooted in its unique mix of public education, media, and judicial advocacy. We are here today to talk to Kathleen about CJE's current work in judicial reform, how CJE is using the U.S. divorce and child murder statistics to inform media oversight and education efforts, and take a look back at some of CJE's past victories. So welcome, Kathleen. Thank you, Terry. So let's start with you and your journey to CJE, or the Center for Judicial Excellence. What were you doing before CJE, and how did you come to this work? I got into this work after I was running a PR firm, which I started in San Rafael, California. And I just started meeting protective mothers who were sharing their stories with me. And so as a PR person, my first thought was, this should all be on 60 Minutes. How come I haven't heard of this? This is crazy. And sort of decided with a small group of people in Marin, none of whom were litigants or had family law issues, that we should start a nonprofit instead of just picketing at the courthouse, which it had been going on for the four years before, quite a while actually. But I moved there in 2002 and we started CJE in 2006. So there'd been many years of protests and Karen Winner had come to Marin County and written a report about the problems in family law. And there was quite a bit of protest when I moved to the county, but we decided to take it to another level and start our own nonprofit. So that's what we did. I see. And so this is the closing interview of a series that we've been doing on family court. And we actually haven't really defined all of the players and court appointees in family court. And since CJE is in the business of holding these players and court appointees accountable, maybe you can briefly outline who they are and the typical paths that one can take to hold each of these accountable. So for example, the judges, the attorneys for children, guardians at litem, and other court appointed evaluators or expert witnesses. Sure. Well, there is a whole cottage industry of so-called professionals who are working in family law, and some of them certainly have their hearts in the right place and are well-trained, but there is a huge problem in the whole system with the lack of accountability, and that is the core that our organization was built on and comes from, is that we need judicial accountability in order for children to be safe in family law. So the cottage industry is made up of family law attorneys who represent mothers and fathers who are going through divorce or separation. And some of them get appointed as a minor's counsel in California. We call it minor's counsel. In other states, they refer to representatives for the child's best interest as guardian ad litems. And in some states, I know in Montana, you didn't even need to have a high school diploma in order to be appointed as a GAL, or that's the short for guardian ad litem. There are custody evaluators that if your marriage or your partnership has enough money, then the court system, they find that out as soon as you file for divorce, what kind of assets the couple has. And so They can easily assess if your situation will be able to afford a custody evaluator. And those can cost like $40,000 to $80,000. And they're usually PhD psychologists, at least in California. Those are experts, so-called, that are hired by the court to determine who the better parent is or what the parenting plan should be by an in-depth investigation sometimes takes six to eight months 
But we know that because of the lack of accountability for anyone that works in family law, these folks often just recycle reports that they've used in other cases. Sometimes they don't even change the names of the children from family to family. So there's quite a bit of problem there and they, you know, charge a lot of money and the judges rely on these reports. And many of these folks are, you know, steeped in junk science and there needs to be better oversight to keep that from happening. There are also people in family law called special masters and that is problematic. Those become sort of like a case manager for very high conflict or very in-depth, long-lasting cases that can go on for 8 to 15 years, depending on the age of the children. And then in California, we have mediators, which are, it's really a misnomer. And so they've changed the name now to CCRCs, Child Custody Recommending Counselors. And that's the first stop when you go in for divorce here. And those folks often just have an MFT or they're licensed social workers, and they are supposed to tell the judge. And in more than half the counties in California, they have the authority to recommend custody and how the parents should divide their visitation to the judge. And they have a tremendous amount of power, and they often will just meet with the family and supposed to write their reports and meet with all the collateral witnesses or talk to them within 90 minutes per family, which obviously they can't do a very thorough job if they have that kind of time. So those are kind of the players. And then were you also interested in the oversight? Yeah. So it sounds like from what you said that the appointment and the qualifications for these different court players varies from state to state. And, you know, so in some states, there may be an education requirement that's much more stringent than in another state. Is that the case also for the accountability? If there's a complaint that someone, like you were saying, or someone is recycling a report, is is there oversight about that? And what can a litigant do? I mean, there are different requirements state by state for these various professionals or court appointees. But one thing that is, in my 12 years of working on this issue and talking to parents all over the country, and particularly mothers, is that there is a lack of accountability nationwide. And that is why we're working with the Congress to try to call attention to that, that the states need to better standardize, particularly the requirements to be a custody evaluator, because those are those custody evaluations can determine whether a child has to spend the rest of their life with a violent or sexually abusive parent. So, you know, the states need to do a better job of disciplining these folks who, many of them lie on their resumes and CVs about what degree they have and um, what kind of training they have. Some have diplomas from diploma mills. Someone in California actually registered for a forensic psychologist license as the name of their pet cat. And for $350, they got a a forensic psychologist license for the cat. So there's clearly a breakdown in every state that I know of in terms of accountability. And every profession has oversight agencies. In California, we have the Board of Psychology, which is supposed to discipline PhD psychologists. We have the Board of Behavioral Sciences, which is supposed to be disciplining licensed clinical social workers and MFTs, which are marriage and family therapists. Anyone that works in family law that is not a PhD psychologist would have complaints filed with the BBS, it's called. And then the bar associations are supposed to be disciplining lawyers. And we've really honed in on these oversight agencies in California is that their discipline rates are equally abysmal across the board. Um, The CJP, which is the Judicial Oversight Agency, has a less than uh, 4% discipline rate. So more than 96% of complaints end up being triaged or simply not investigated. No discipline occurs. And the same is true of the Board of Psychology and the Board of Behavioral Science. So 
all of these agencies were created to protect the public and they have gotten so cozy over the decades with the industries that they are supposed to be disciplining because a lot of them are actually licensing the agencies as well. So they have a conflict of interest that's inherent in their missions. And so they go to conferences like the board of psych will go to conferences with the California Psychological Association, and they'll give workshops on how to deal with a complaint against you. The same with the Commission on Judicial Performance. We'll routinely attend the California Judges Association conferences and give workshops on the work that they do. But there's no education or commitment to meeting with the public and telling the public how to file a proper complaint. I mean, these are agencies that at their mission and on their websites, it clearly states, we were created in order to protect the public from misconduct and unethical behavior by these professions. And they've all fallen so far afield of those missions that people that work in family law in these positions know that there is no one looking over their shoulder. And so when you have people operating in the dark with no sunshine, no government sunshine, it's just a breeding ground for bad behavior. So that's why we feel, and that's one of the most important elements that's missing is accountability. So in 2010, you helped organize and facilitate the first White House briefing on the family court Mm -hmm. crisis. And then the following year, a briefing with the Department of Justice. And this came at the heels of a Department of Justice and Health and Human Services seven-year demonstration project implementing the Green Book Initiative, a comprehensive set of responses designed to eliminate or decrease enormous risks that battered parents, caseworkers, and judges must take on behalf of children. Can you talk about how effective those briefings were at the time, given their previous knowledge of the attendees' previous knowledge and the resources dedicated to addressing some aspects of these problems? Sure. Yes, it was an honor to work to coordinate the first White House briefing that we gave to a couple members of the Department of Justice and the White House advisor on violence against women, Lynn Rosenthal. So we brought some experts who I know you've interviewed on your podcast and a few protective mothers whose children had been murdered, Amy Lichtenberg and Katie Tegel. And we had a group of 10 or 12 women who came and educated them about the crisis in the family courts. And I think they heard us in a way that they hadn't before. I wasn't involved with the Green Book Initiative, so... I wasn't really engaging in this work during that process. So I can't really speak to how this differed or how it might have been heard differently or how effective it was. But these mothers felt very heard in the meeting and it led to the DOJ OVW briefing the following March, which was a half day event and a number of protective mothers and some children who've lived through horrific family law experiences spoke. And there was involvement from HHS and some of the top people there participated. And the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges had a representative and Protect doing great work in the Capitol was involved. So that was a great event. But then, you know, political situations change and people move jobs and, you know, Nothing ever came of it, really. There was supposed to be a report out of the OVW event that we bothered them for over two years. And to this day, I still haven't seen the report that was supposed to have come out of that half-day event. But at least we got this on the map. And that really was important that the White House created this office and that we had a, a dialogue. And we were able to bring mothers from the grassroots to talk to some pretty influential people. But in terms of tangible outcome, it didn't do a whole lot. Did that help or contribute to your organization's success in getting audits of the Marin and Sacramento County courts back in 2011? 
Yeah, actually, no. We did our work on the audits with the California legislature before the White House event in 2010. CJE has partnered with the California Protective Parents Association since 2007 is when we started making the rounds to our state legislature. And we were successful in getting an audit of two family courts, two of the worst in California, in Sacramento and Marin County. And that took us a number of years because we had the Joint Legislative Audit Committee had rotating chairs and, you know, we had rotating sponsors of our request. And eventually we got it passed and I believe it was 2009 and Yeah, the audit showed what we knew it would show, which is people that were working in family law, mediators and attorneys for the children. There were problems in terms of any accountability when complaints were filed, and also mediators were not um, being trained in domestic violence or child abuse. And these were the front lines of family law. So we got our state auditor to look into that. But what was amazing is we learned a year after the fact that there was a delay of up to 10 months where the Marine court refused to let the auditor in. We later learned that the court executive officer was having a massive shredding party and destroying all kinds of files that the mediators relied on when they would be cross-examined in court. And when we exposed all this, the highest judicial body in California had a report that was written that basically said these weren't really official court records that were destroyed and they were just needing to create space in the courthouse and that because they were working notes of the mediator and not official court records, it was completely above board to destroy thousands of documents that were pertinent to the audit that they were keeping from starting while they were shredding. So we have a long history of malfeasance in Marin County and in California where there's a serious breach of accountability. So how do you first determine that Marin and Sacramento counties were the two that had the most issues? What was the process for identifying them? Well, at that point, the CPPA, the California Protective Parents, and Center for Judicial Excellence were both receiving, and we still are, although CPPA doesn't do calls anymore, but Um, dozens of calls weekly, and the most complaints were coming from litigants in Sacramento and Marin County. We actually had a list of about six or eight counties that were pretty bad and that had more complaints coming through than others, but due to state budget issues, we were told we had to limit it to just two. We chose those two because We knew from our own experience and our own documentation of complaints that there were serious problems and a large number of parents who were experiencing problems in their cases in those two counties. So you spoke about one of the problems being that these mediators and court appointees weren't properly trained in domestic violence. What is the risk of that? What happens if someone is working on a case and isn't properly trained? Well, they're going to unwittingly collude with the abusers, which happens all the time, where they get sort of conned into, you know, the charms that a narcissist or an abuser can put on in public settings, and they don't understand the basics of abuser behavior, right, which is you can be the most charming person in the room in public, but that doesn't mean you're not doing horrible things to your children at home or your spouse. And so because there wasn't that proper training, it explained a lot to us about why so many children were being reportedly put into custody and visitation with abusers. But isn't, I mean, it seems to me the process itself could be flawed if these mediators need to come in to assess abuse if they haven't identified that there's abuse to begin with because mediation isn't a process that should be suggested to cases where there's domestic violence. Isn't that the case? Yes. Um, Well, they 
they order mediation in every case in California. You're not supposed to be forced into the same room with an abuser. That is the law or the local rules in many California courts. But some domestic violence cases, they will interview the mother. And usually the DV victim is the mom, but not always. And then they'll interview the father and they'll do it separately. And sometimes, you know, more often than they should, they bring them into the same room. And then obviously, if that's what they're basing their opinion on, they're missing all the undercurrent of, I mean, all the tactics that abusers use to coerce and threaten their surviving ex-spouses. And so, yeah, if they're not trained, then they're not, you know, they're kind of missing the boat. And they see a victim who's suffering from PTSD, and they'll think that that parent is unstable and unreliable and over the top, you know, histrionic. And then they'll see an abuser who's calm, cool, and collected. And, you know, without understanding domestic violence and child abuse, they often will let their biases dictate what they recommend. And that's where we see a lot of children being put into dangerous contact. And are these officials perhaps trained in trauma or in mental health issues that might affect these survivors, such as PTSD, in order to identify them? We would like to think that mediators are properly trained in mental health and understand, again, the dynamics of domestic violence and child abuse. And yet what we found in practice is that far too many of them are steeped in junk science, which kind of undercuts all of the social science around domestic violence and child abuse. So we even had a bill in our state legislature in 2008 to try to outlaw the use of some of this junk science. And we were not successful at the time. It wasn't nearly as hopeful or we didn't have the support that we have in the legislature now. So it didn't succeed. But we find that in a lot of the cases where children are put in harm's way, there's a mediator or an evaluator or a minor's counsel or all of the above who are using junk science, you know, bias instead of real domestic violence research as the basis for their decisions. And I think we probably should also include in that list, I've spoken with many protective parents who've also referenced their own attorneys um, who may not be aware and understand the dynamics and may not be fully an ally to the survivors that they're representing. Right. That is correct. Or oftentimes someone's own attorney knows what's happening in a case, but they know that the judge will punish the parent for bringing those issues up. So a lot of parents that we talk to feel like their attorneys did not advocate aggressively enough for the safety of their children, which is true. But they're also, whether it's to curry favor with the judge who they have to appear before in all of their cases, or whether it's also just a practical matter that they know that the judges are without video evidence of abuse, (laughs) going to question the litigant who's bringing that abuse allegation forward, um, it gets very murky with attorneys. And I know many parents who cycle through four and five and six lawyers trying to find one that will advocate the facts of their case appropriately. But when you have a judge who is sort of hell-bent against believing abuse because of junk science, no lawyer is going to be able to succeed in prevailing in that sort of environment. Hmm. So are there any current legislative initiatives that your organization is working on to advance some of the uh, judicial reform and advocacy? Sure. We are very involved with the congressional resolution, HCON Res 72, at the federal level, which has been many, many years in the making. And We're partnering with D.V. Leap and Joan Meyer and California Protective Parents Association and Connie Valentine 
and the ACEs organization, which is an umbrella group of many of our protective parent groups. And we're thrilled to have 48 different co-sponsors from 16 different states and both political parties. And our new lead sponsor is in the leadership of the Republican Party, Pete Sessions from Texas, is now our new lead sponsor. So we're very hopeful about the resolution and all the support that we've been able to generate with a lot of protective parents from around the country weighing in with their members of Congress and getting support. And then on the local level or statewide level here in California, we are working on legislation AB 2044, which tightens up and provides more protection for children in abuse cases and family law. And we're really excited about Peaky's resolution, which will likely be heard in the Assembly Judiciary Committee in August. And Peaky's resolution is not binding, but it is a statement by the legislature. It's not binding law per se, but it's the legislature saying that child safety needs to be the number one priority in family court decision-making in California. And that parallels the language of the federal resolution, which also says child, I mean, it seems like a no-brainer, but it does need to be elevated and talked about and passed at the federal and the state level because the courts have veered so far away from child safety as anyone who's seen our child homicide map of the U.S. will see that it's a real problem. Yeah, that's actually a great segue. I was going to turn to that part of CJE's work next, which is the data and mapping project that you've collected on divorce and child murder. Can you tell us about this work and what you're hoping to accomplish with it? Sure. We tried for many years to get different academics at different universities around the country to invest in doing more research and family law cases and outcomes. And we've not been able to find a professor or a department willing to do that. And so we just in 2010 decided to start collecting our own data. We did get some of our early data from Jan Kurth, who did a lot of work pulling this information together. And we started looking at all of the children who are being murdered by a mother or a father who was in the midst of a divorce, separation, or child support or child custody matter. And we did this just by looking at news reports and have identified 636 children who were murdered by a parent or parent figure in their life who was in the midst of divorce, separation, child custody, or child support, or visitation, showing just the fragile nature of this time in people's lives and the need for the system to put in safeguards so that children are better protected in this highly volatile time. And this is the tip of the iceberg. There very well may be more murders of children by divorcing parents and separating parents. We are just collecting those that the news media have done enough of their homework on these cases to report a custody angle. But this data is already proving to be very useful. And our murder map is used in Congress in every congressional meeting that takes place on the Hill. And we've been told by the pro bono lobbyists we're working with that it's been extremely effective because every member of Congress looks at their state and, you know, you can't argue with the fact that children are no longer here and the tragedy of that. And so that's really helped us to get some support from both Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, our data is helping to create the conversation and Does the data also include, because you've mapped it out, does it match the zip codes to other demographic data, such as race and ethnicity and maybe income levels in those zip codes? No, it's been quite a big project for a very small staff here at CJE. So we are actually just now expanding our research with the help of DV Leap. We are 
beginning a project this summer to take our data to a deeper level and start to look at some of the specific cases where family courts, in many cases, could have prevented these child homicides if they had taken all of the warnings and the evidence into consideration. And so we want to do what was done in the UK, which was a very comprehensive report that Women's Aid over in the UK did on just 19 children's deaths over there. And that brought about significant change in the government, just being able to talk in depth about the cases where children were murdered and shouldn't have been, and also included a whole bunch of possible policy remedies to avoiding those outcomes. So our goal is to expand our bandwidth and our ability to look more carefully and actually go and look at case files and determine more in depth. But we just have not had the capacity, as I think you probably know, there's not a lot of resources for protected parent organizations around the country, especially those at the grassroots, Mm -hmm. to be able to do the kind of demographic in-depth data analysis that you're talking about. I would love to be able to do that, but we haven't been able to yet. So just to clarify, the map includes fatality statistics for domestic violence, homicides, and report deaths of the victim and any other family member. But if the victim is not killed, but his or her child is killed, is that included in the map as well? If the victim is spared? Yeah. Some people aren't clear on what the map identifies. We are only focused on child murders. So there are thousands of spouses or girlfriends or partners of an abuser who are murdered that do not fall into our tally. So we're simply dealing with children 22 and younger who've been killed by a parent or parental figure. So sometimes we've included step parents or aunts or uncles if they were raising the child. But yeah, it's a narrow pool and there's likely more than we're even capturing. But um, we sometimes, because of the exposure of the project through social media, we have people approaching us at times saying, I have a case. And if anybody listening has information or wants to look at our website and see if we've got all the child homicides that you know of that involved a divorcing or separating parent. And we'd love to build the database to be as accurate as possible. What we found is a lot of the official sources on child homicides are contradicting each other. And so the FBI data is not complete. There's CDC data, which contradicts the FBI data. And so a lot of the official sources are not accurate. And so we figured rather than continually banging our head on a wall trying to find people to do this research, we could at least start to create our own data set so that, and it's already proving to be valuable. It seems like this would be really useful to append to fatality statistics for domestic violence homicides, because those numbers don't currently include deaths of the child. They only include deaths of the victim. So if a child were to be murdered, like the child murder map that you have, It's not included in, I know for New York City, the fatality statistics for domestic violence homicides, and nor do do any of these statistics, I believe, cover rates of suicide by children who are court-mandated to live with their abuser. So it seems to me it would be really helpful to aggregate all of this data to get a more comprehensive picture. Yes, it would be. And that's the number one thing that we are asked when we meet with lawmakers whether they're federal or state level, and the media, is they want to know the data. How many people is this affecting? So that's been a real challenge for the first decade that I was doing this work, and that's why we started collecting data. But there's a lot more data that needs to be consolidated. I agree with you. It would be very helpful to have all of that data in one place. So 
brings us to our next topic, which um, is media advocacy. At the bottom of the page featuring the map, there's a link to an article by a journalist on the child custody crisis in this country and how the family courts are putting children in danger. And it, you know, it struck me because I was wondering when I saw that link was how did the journalist learn about this? Was it something that your organization helped to contribute to in terms of bringing some awareness of these issues to the media? Is that something that you currently do with the organization? And if so, how do you identify the uh, individuals who are covering this area and, and how responsive are they to your outreach? Yeah, that's a big part of what our organization has contributed to the movement because of my PR background. I have done a lot of work getting hundreds of reporters over the years to write about this or do television about this. We worked with Fox 11 News in Los Angeles on 13 different installments of their Lost in the System series back in 2012 before veteran producer Martin Burns, who we were working with, had sort of an untimely death at age 56. And that was really sad. And But we did some amazing television work at that time. And yeah, just through our work in the legislature and certainly knowing the media, NBC in the Bay Area is also has an investigative team that's about to do some very cutting edge reporting about, I probably shouldn't say until it comes out, but about family law issues. And then ABC 10 in Sacramento we're working with Lilia Luciano, and we convinced her two years ago to get into the family law issue. And she followed us around CPPA and CJE for two years and did quite a bit of reporting on family law in the month of May. And then, yes, we worked with Lori Udesky. I think that's the link you're referring to from 100 Reporters and I worked with Linda Jew, who was with the GW Center for Investigative Journalism. I introduced her to this topic back in 2008, and she said she'd do what she could. And she wrote a grant, and they were able to get this story partially funded. But it took six years to get this story published and out. And these are very complicated cases and complicated stories to tell. And so, I know my colleague Garland Waller has a whole chapter of a book about how things, these family law stories end up on the cutting room floor in a lot of investigative newsrooms. So, you know, we're pretty familiar with what the barriers and challenges are. And it's usually the legal department of these networks and newspapers that don't want to be sued. And so we've come up with ways to work with them to get around those concerns and these just take a long time to come out, but when they do, they certainly have an impact. So, you know, we're not at the tipping point yet on these issues, but if you remember Spotlight and the impact that the Spotlight team at the Boston Globe had on the Catholic Church scandal, I believe it was over 300 articles that that one newspaper wrote around the priest abuse before the issue went viral around the country and then eventually around the world. So um, how, how many, how many articles have been written about the family court crisis so we can see when the tipping point's going to yeah. be? Well, you know, the tipping point is out of our control. I don't think there's any magic number around the number of articles. I think world events, you know, are, are what are going to get us to that tipping point. And certainly the more that we see the mainstream media covering challenges around child abuse and CPS and the treatment of children, it's you know really just a matter of time before we start to see more broad, widespread coverage of family court cases. But that's why I do this work is I just keep fighting because and talking and I do believe that this like the Catholic Church scandal. I mean, there were advocates pushing for decades to expose what was happening to children at the hands of priests. And this is no different. Um, we've been at this for decades. I've only been in it 12 years, but I know others have been at this much longer. And 
we will get to a tipping point and it will come out and that will be a huge victory and there'll still be a lot of work to do to to undo the damage and fix the system and or start with a new system from scratch because a lot of people believe this one is beyond repair but there needs to be yeah just continued advocacy and i'm you know sadly the more this goes on this crisis the more victims of family court are out there and they're finding their voices and the children who've lived through these horrifying experiences and those who don't commit suicide or aren't killed by a parent but who live to tell about it some of them are finding their voices and i continue to try to give them access to the news media so that you know we can have survivors in the front lines of this movement talking about their experience and and why children's voices are so important in this you know human rights struggle that we're in so i don't have any anecdotal uh, it's just completely anecdotal i don't have any data to substantiate this but i've felt that when i read the stories of the mass shootings over the past year and a half that there has been more of a connection in those stories to a domestic violence or a misogynistic history of the shooter. But that's only for the mass shootings. When I read about the murder suicides, there's still, I think, more of a concentration on, you know, the quote unquote triggers of custody or divorce or something that in some way puts the blame on the victim of abuse. And I'm wondering, have you seen any change in general in the media and how they've covered this? Is there a maturity in the way they've covered it? Or is it just because you've named so many organizations that you're working with, the fact that they're more engaged, that's just proof that they're more willing and interested in this topic? Yeah, I think there is, I don't know about a maturing. I think there's some important journalism training going on in certain institutes. And there are crime reporters who are digging deeper and looking at some of the the backgrounds. And certainly I agree with you, the mass shooters, there's been some really good reporting on the domestic violence history of so many of them. And I know even from my own research, like the San Bernardino shooting, that shooter was the victim of a very high conflict divorce between his parents. So um, there was a family law connection there. There was a family law connection in Seal Beach, California, which I thought was an important case because it was a mass shooting that involved people in a hair salon. So it wasn't just relatives of the shooter or, you know, this was the public was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that was divorce related as well. So one of my dreams would be to do trainings for journalists on how to draw the connections and how to cover family law when they're reporting because, you know, a lot of them are still, as you pointed out, not covering these effectively. And a lot of, certainly the child murders, it's, you know, this community has never seen anything like this and they don't connect the dots as we've been able to do. So when I'm able and I have the time and I see one of these murder suicides happening and the press reporting on it, I will often send them a copy of our map and talk about the fact that this experience in this isolated rural community or city, whatever it may be, is part of a larger pattern and that many of these are preventable homicides if the system were working properly. So we have gotten some press educated about these issues and that 100 Reporters article that Laura Udesky wrote received an award from the Society of Professional Journalists in our region, which also gave more exposure. So, um, you know, it's slow work. It's not as fast as I would like it to be. And I get frustrated because I know every day that these stories don't run, there's harm being committed to children. But, you know, we have to deal with the realities of the news media and they sometimes get pulled onto different stories and, or they don't have funding to fully delve into this full time. And so they, 
take a lot longer. Sometimes there are legal obstacles, threats that are made to the TV station that a parent who's been called for comment about a case can threaten lawsuits and they're highly litigious people and you know organizations get very nervous about that and I think a maturing of the issue and certainly an increase in the number of victims and many survivors of family court are quite articulate and you know some even going up to reporters at conferences and saying boy do I have a story for you and getting them engaged. That's how NBC was engaged in in our situation. So yeah, it's not as hopeless as it once was. And in our organization, we try to work on system-wide reform in the state legislature because the news media is comfortable reporting on something. If lawmakers are trying to fix it, then just going and saying, do I have a he said, she said divorce story for you to follow or to delve into? So we found that it's been very effective to sort of marry a media strategy with a legislative strategy because the media believe you and see you as more credible if you've got lawmakers willing to introduce bills on these issues. And lawmakers love nothing more than lots of news coverage for the work that they do. So a lot of protected parents over the years have said to me, how come I can't get my local paper to write about my case. And it's very, very difficult to get the press to weed through or look through, you know, what is often a half a room full of legal notes on these very long cases. So that's how we managed to get media coverage for the crisis in the family courts is focusing more on the system. And obviously you have to have a few real cases to do that. But just having a case alone is generally not easy to get coverage. So, I mean, two other areas that your organization works on is you had mentioned earlier the education oversight committees for the California Board of Psychology, California Board of Behavioral Sciences, Department of Consumer Affairs, and also your organization works with courts court misconduct with regard to Judge Beverly Wood, for example. I mean, it seems to me that a lot of these systemic issues stem from the structural sort of impediments that are inherent in having an oversight organization or arm be in charge of, you know, the investigating a group of people that they're fraternizing with, as you referenced. Can there be actual accountability with the current structures that are in place? Well, it's an interesting question. In 2016, we got our state's only judicial oversight agency audited. The state legislature unanimously voted to audit the Commission on Judicial Performance, which has been around, at that point, it was 56 years, and it had never been audited. And we could tell from our own research that our partners had done looking at California's discipline of judges compared to New York, Arizona, and Texas, that we were spending a lot more money on our oversight agency, and they were doing a fraction of the disciplining of judges that other states were. And so we were thrilled that we got this historic audit passed, but within six weeks, this oversight body sued the state auditor in court, which is pretty typical of the judicial branch in our experience. They're always fighting oversight and sunshine. And that is still a battle that is going on. This is going up on appeal now. The lower court ruled in favor of the judge's oversight agency that they could keep their records confidential, which we expected because it was a judge deciding on an issue affecting judges. But the state legislature, both the Senate and Assembly, voted to cut the commission's budget in budget negotiations by $500,000. And in the final negotiations, the governor apparently put the funds back in and the cut did not remain. But we have allies and legislators who are very concerned about the lack of oversight and accountability for the judge's agency. So that is an ongoing battle we're doing. 
And we're hoping that we can audit perhaps the Board of Psychology or the Board of Behavioral Science as well, because they're really failing to protect the public. And we've been organizing protected parents to come with us to all of the Board of Psychology meetings in the last year and a half. And we've started attending all of the Board of Behavioral Sciences. They rotate around the state of California. And we show up at every one and we're educating them about the crisis and that their boards are not protecting the public. So so let me just clarify. So the agency that is in charge of judicial oversight, I'm guessing is a state-funded, taxpayer-funded agency. Is that correct? Yes. Five, $5.2 million they got from the legislature. Okay. So they are using taxpayer money to block their own audit. Is that correct? Yes, by the legislature's auditor. Yep, I exactly. See. And there's nothing that we, or I'm not a, a citizen of California, but there's nothing that Californians can do to expedite this because it's in the court's hands? Basically, all that we have to do was to get the legislature to threaten their funding because they're clearly not doing a adequate job of disciplining judges if, um, you know, we have, I mean, they give reports every year about, they get about 1,100 complaints a year. And so if the commission wins their battle through the courts, then the audit cannot continue, cannot proceed. Is that right? Correct. I mean, there are budget work that we did as advocates in the state of California has compelled the agency to some meetings with the state auditor to try to see if they can work out a settlement. And our hope is that that might occur. But if it doesn't, I mean, this legal process, as everyone listening probably knows, can drag on for two to three years. And the CJP, this agency is going to have to come back for funding next year. And so we will be there as well, trying to cut their funding. And, you know, we've not just worked with the legislature who funds them, but we've submitted changes through the CJP's own, they have what is called the biennial rules process. And they take public comments on how they can better change their rules as an agency. And we've submitted our ideas through that process. So we meet with the attorney general and we've met with the governor's office to try to educate them. We're really hopeful that we'll have a new, we will have a new governor in January. And our hope is that that new governor will be much more sympathetic to the public and judicial accountability than our current governor has been. So we're not giving up. And I think it's, you know, very indicative that the judges are going to such lengths and spending so much money fighting and accountability. And, you know, they have said to the state auditor that they would you know, let the auditor proceed if she would just eliminate three issues that she wants to look at. And surprise, surprise, those three issues are the ones that we, the public, brought forward into the request. And the auditor is saying, you don't get to pick and choose what issues I look at. And particularly, they're concerned about the discipline records. They don't want to show the records of discipline of judges because our belief is, and just looking at their reports, there's so many valid complaints that have not resulted in discipline, and they don't want the auditor to see that. But the auditor, to her credit, is saying, I'm not going to limit the audit just to please you, and I could actually lose federal funding by doing so. So this is a battle that will continue, but we've raised a lot of visibility. We've worked with the San Francisco Chronicle and they've been covering this. They've done editorials about it. And they've also sent a reporter to the hearings and they've reported on that. So, you know, we're hopeful that we're finally getting some mainstream media attention on what has historically been this opaque part of our government that operates in the dark and wields its power and avoids public scrutiny to the detriment of the public. So. It's an exciting time for our work um, because even though we didn't get the budget cut through that we wanted this year, we have raised a lot of awareness around the problems of a lack of judicial accountability. First of all, 
back to the judges who you were referencing were having inappropriate relationships in their uh, offices. I'm guessing that people who were working in those offices reported them and you, you, you know, they're still working there, you mentioned. This makes me think about Aaron Persky, the judge who presided over the Brock Turner rape case, who was earlier this month recalled. I, I know that that was unusual, but is there any way that these judges that you're referring to who have engaged in this kind of misconduct, is that an option for dealing with their misconduct or is it just so rare what happened with Aaron Persky? I'm glad you brought that up because CJE is a 501c3 nonprofit. We did not take a position on that recall because that is not legal for us to do. But I did want to share that, I mean, it was unusual that the recall succeeded because there was so much money that the opponents of Aaron Persky were able to raise from sexual assault advocacy groups and rape prevention groups around the country. So that was a victory for women's groups. But what people don't understand, and the courts have been very diligently getting their talking points around the country, and I've read a lot of articles in places where I would have expected a little more measured approach, basically questioning the wisdom of recalling a judge. And I have wrote a detailed article to the New York, or email to the New York Times in particular, explaining to them the Persky recall didn't, wouldn't have happened if the Commission on Judicial Performance was doing its job properly. And that you can't say, well, we have to have judicial independence, which is the talking point of the courts, right? And all the judicial players are saying this will undermine criminal justice reform because judges are going to be looking over their shoulder and worried about not being tough enough in their sentencing. And they're just using fear tactics to try to undermine the impact of this judicial recall. And so you can't be yelling about judicial independence and judges need to just implement the law and focus on that. You know, they've used a lot of scare tactics around the angry mob, you know, can't just be getting rid of judges they don't like. But if you have a system that has failed to discipline judges for bias and wrongdoing and misconduct and illegal behavior, as we have in California for decades, then you're going to see recalls happening. You can't just be talking out of one side of your mouth about judicial independence and not giving some play to the real need for accountability. And so that whole recall, I believe, came out of this crisis and accountability. And California has one of the lowest rates of judicial elections in the country. The Stanford Law Review had an article that said only 8% of judges in California have opponents. So that is a serious problem. And for those judges that don't get an opponent, their name doesn't even appear on the ballot. So it's essentially a lifetime appointment. And so we have this sort of window dressing that looks like we elect judges and it's this democratic process. But in reality, judges are not challenged in this state. And once you get in, you're sort of in for life and it's very unusual. I mean, we haven't had a judge recalled since 1932. So it does require a lot of money and most grassroots efforts to recall judges don't have hundreds of thousands or a million dollars to take on a legal community, which always will sort of embrace the judge that's being recalled. And if they don't retire under pressure, which apparently a couple judges in Solano County here in California were, went to early retirement when there was a recall announced and now they're in through the back door working as private judges. So, yeah, there's it's an it's not an easy task to create judicial accountability, but we're working on it and the Center for Public Integrity has a state investigation state integrity investigation every 4 or 6 years and when they did their last one, they found California got an F grade for they grade different parts of state government. A to F, and we got an F grade in judicial accountability. 
So the Persky recall comes in a context that is very important. And most of the news coverage of the Persky decision is pretty much spouting the judge's talking points about this is a crisis for judicial independence and dangerous and what have you. And yet nobody's talking about judicial accountability except for us. And it's a really important aspect to why that recall even happened. So to be clear, if citizens of California wanted to change the term for judges, that requires, I'm assuming, a legislative bill? Or a initiative. I see. A ballot initiative, which costs millions of dollars. I yeah. see. Okay. But uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure of the election law. It might be something that the legislature could do. Sounds like something that we probably need all across the country in every state. I guess that's, mm-hmm. that's for another conversation. <laughs> We're actually at the end of our conversation, Kathleen. And in the spirit of James Lipton's Inside the Actor Studio questionnaire, we've created an engendered questionnaire for all of our guests. First question, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Well, the future of healthy families and healthy communities in our society is at stake, I believe. We have to stop the harm that is being committed by courts to children and parents, and particularly mothers, in order for us to stop the cycle of violence and substance abuse and the explosion of prison inmates. I mean, our family courts are creating, they're feeding the cycle of broken individuals who are committing crimes and doing drugs and, you know, needing to numb their pain of their trauma. So I think, yeah, the whole future of healthy relationships and healthy communities, the productivity of our whole society is at stake. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is the progress I've seen over the last 12 years that I've been doing this work. When, I, when we first started, I was, Connie and I would go to the state capitol and people would say, oh, this is just a few anecdotal cases. This isn't really an epidemic. And now we go in and there's just a broad belief and agreement that the family court system is making far too many mistakes. And there's a lot of movement with the media, as we talked about. And so I've always believed that we're going to fix this problem through exposure. And I know there are lawyers that you'll interview who will believe that it has to happen in the courtroom. And maybe it'll happen in both places. But I'm not an attorney, and I am a PR person. So I believe that we've made great progress in exposing the crisis in the courts through the media. And that gives me a lot of hope that we'll continue to do that. So speaking to our listeners, what advice do you have for them around what we as a society can do more of, less of, start or stop to be part of the solution? I just want to say that the protective parents that I've been privileged to work with are an inspiration. And I know they're the most courageous people I've ever met and the strongest people I know and the ability to even get out of bed in the morning and face another day when you've suffered such immeasurable losses is to me, I mean, it's just, you're all heroes. And I think that the more that people can continue to shoulder through and shoulder on and keep talking about what's happened to you and not isolate and work together and collaborate with others and continue to write letters to the editor and speak out and meet with your lawmakers and, you know, collaborate with each other through social media. I really do believe that the grassroots and the survivors are making a lot of this change happen. So I think the more everyone can continue to do that, and obviously there'll be days where you need to focus on self-care and not 
not be involved in a movement, but, you know, continue speaking out, continue supporting each other and continue having faith that like any social justice movement, the truth will eventually come out. And I would also encourage people to broaden beyond the family court movement and start making connections to other social justice movements that are similar or dealing with similar issues around trauma or separation of parents and children, other types of, you know, I mean, the, the more we can build bridges to other movements and make connections to other issues, I think the more effective we'll be. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for joining our show today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuen. Thank you. Thank you.